Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. Fulner, I have been... uh at various times, president of this institution uh, over the last 40 years, and it's always a great pleasure to return and to have a uh, an exciting opportunity, really a, a very pleasant one, to introduce somebody who's very special, not just to the Heritage Foundation, uh, but to the whole conservative movement. I first got to know today's speaker when he was a member of the U.S. House of Representatives, He did that, went on to become a very distinguished and successful governor in an unlikely place uh, called Maryland, uh, which uh, was was a a very good four-year run. But in the meantime, and continuing right up to today, in addition to his uh, full-time activities as a member of the bar and a senior partner at King & Spaulding here in town, uh, he's been a prolific writer, a couple of books, regular columns in the Washington Examiner, Times, even the Post, once in a while, uh, and, <laughs> and various other publications, uh, contributor on uh, Fox News, Fox Business News, and somebody who really gives us some really great insights. I, uh, I did do a little jacket blurb here uh, for Bob's book because I had the opportunity to read it in page proofs. And uh, as I said, it's it really is a very good read. I encourage all of you to do so, but I particularly encourage you today uh, to listen to the governor and hear what he has to say about where we are today, where we've come from, as he discusses his volume. Bet you didn't see that one coming. Governor Ehrlich. All right. I'm not sucking up here, but as you know, the guy just introduced me. He's been pretty important to this organization and this movement for many, many years. And as, as Ed said, we have been friends for decades and, and we have a close mutual friend, Elaine Pevenstein. Many of you know Elaine, who's been my right hand for many years. She helped arrange this with Ed. You, uh, led this organization with dignity and distinction. And uh, you raised a few bucks along the way too, right? And that really counts. So to be here with you today, uh, to know what you mean to this movement is a great honor for all of us, I think. Uh, that's, that's an applause line, by the way. Yeah. Uh, so if you uh, worked in the Ehrlich administration, you can stand. Please stand. Please stand. And just take your time and tell everybody what a great governor I, I was. Just, Greg, you can start. Just no, take your time. Just, just. Uh, Anyway, it's, it's good to be here. I'm going to be real brief. Uh, I've been running around the country with the book, and as the people who've been around me for many years know, I write my own stuff. I 
as a member of Congress, wrote my own speeches. As, as a governor, I wrote my own uh, States of the Union and major speeches. And my deputy chief of staff, Ed Miller, is back there. knows very well because sometimes I would wake up on, uh, on State of the State Day and I was upset, Ed. I, the left had done something to me, to our cause. And uh, Greg Missoni would be there knowing I was in a bad mood, which is always dangerous because uh, when something was on my mind during the State of the State, I would go off script. And your senior staff, it gets very nervous when you go off script. But uh, sometimes the Washington Post didn't like what I said, but that's when I knew I was right. So uh, in any event, I write my own stuff and I enjoy my own stuff because my suspicion over the years was uh, in all my races for legislature, for uh, for the House, for, for governorship, that I thought part of my appeal was that when I spoke words, people suspected those words were mine. Those thoughts reflected my views. And I think in politics, it doesn't get any better than that. It just does not get any better than that. So uh, Greg Masoni's here. He's been with me for many years, my, my former press secretary, and uh, he knows how true that statement is. So with regard to this book, it's my fourth book. It's done very well. It started number one on one of Amazon's political categories. It came out real hot, and it's the first time really a publisher's been excited about a title because you can't beat the title because you can't beat where America was and is today. Bet you didn't see that one coming. And a lot of people didn't see it coming. Some people pretend they saw it coming, but very few people actually did see it coming, and because I was out there uh, on the stump with my third book tour, uh, Turning Point, I was able to, to see, to, to experience, to touch what was happening, and I talk about this by, by in the book, because the book is a combination of of previous previously uh, published uh, columns, sort of the Charles Kronheimer approach, the best of what you wrote at the time, plus new writings, and and so uh, I would be in Naples, Florida. I'd be in New Hampshire. I'd be up and down the East Coast, mostly Ohio sometimes. And, and I would be doing events for Lincoln Day dinners and candidates. And 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 John Kasich was a friend of mine. He was my former chair in the House, uh, budget chair, and someone I have great regard for, popular governor of Ohio. And and I would say nice things about all the candidates, but particularly Kasich. And these women, particularly in the front row, they always sit in the front row and they were wearing Trump T-shirts and they would show up. Every, regardless of the state, they were different women, but it was the same M.O. It was the same T-shirt, the same hat. And when you said something that could be interpreted potentially as not necessarily critical of Donald Trump, but positive with regard to another candidate, you got the catcalls, you got looks, you got sneers. I got booed. Yeah. Uh, and, and so I would go back to my, my law firm, King & Spalding, one of the best law firms in the world, one of the largest, one of the most successful. And, and as many of you know, some of you know me very well, I, I do not drink. I, I've never drank and never felt the need to drink. And, and I, I would go back on Mondays and report to my colleagues that there's something happening out there. I'm, I'm touching, I'm seeing, I'm feeling it. And it's, it's Trump, and I know my buddies really thought I'd started to drink. <laughs> and they were talking about me, right, Greg? They were talking about me, right? Yeah, thanks. Now you tell me. And, um, and so the reaction I got in those meetings is the same reaction you see play out on a daily basis today. And we use these terms like establishment, these sort of Difficult to define terms. It can mean what you want. They're uh, very subjective. But the bottom line is this town, many power brokers in this town, uh, did not get, did not want to get, still do not understand the Trump phenomenon. So I thought since I was out there, 
I would just take some notes and and record what I was feeling and seeing and writing for the Examiner and National Review and all this and and uh, and it occurred to me as as Donald Trump repeatedly violated every rule I had ever been taught, every rule that was ever taught, every rule that ever existed in politics, that there was something going on because he wouldn't die. In fact, every time he violated a rule, he came back stronger. And one day I, I awakened and I turned to Kendall and I said, you know what, I, I'm getting this because there are no rules in the Trump era. In fact, he figured out what he figured out years ago when he was a celebrity, that he is the story. That he sucks the air out of a room. In fact, have you ever seen a president, Ed, that still sucks the air out of a room every day, every way? He is the story every day. So the, the reality of, of the campaign was a small staff running around and ordering McDonald's out to the plane and showing up in tarmacs and, and, and talking stream of consciousness and what you think and what needs to be done and ordering more McDonald's to the plane and going off to the next tarmac. Very little staff, very little paid media violating every rule that we know in town, and the establishment went, huh? What's happening? What's happening here? This cannot be occurring. If you take the time to study the ML, and we'll get more to the ML in a second, but if you take time to study the personal history with regard to, to the president, you'll see that it just wasn't all off the cuff. There wasn't all stream of consciousness because many of the issues that became his core uh, set of, of principles or issues he's been talking about for decades, cutting the corporate income tax, immigration reform, less regulation, treating veterans in the appropriate way. These are issues he's been talking about since the 80s. Of course, he was doing WWE once in a while and showing up at WrestleMania, and he was starting the football league and all that sort of stuff. But in between, he was giving serious policy talks. And those issues reverberated around America during the 2016 campaign. So... Um, so you had this phenomenon out there, and, and so he's doing his thing. And as we know, Hillary Clinton was doing her thing, which was no, no insults to millennials here. I love millennials. I'm raising one. He's a conservative. And um, <laughs> she was following the old playbook and in, in doing, doing what establishments do and taking polls and all that. So I love to try to remind people with regard to just to show you what different planes the two candidates were on. It was Trump being Trump, stream of consciousness, sucking the air out, doing his thing, doing his. By the way, when I heard the term populism in Trump, I sort of my 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 liberal arts education goes 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 haywire because you know, I learned populism as a late 19th century agrarian anti Wall Street bust the. Trust movement. That's not Donald Trump. He is the but he is the trust. He is Wall Street. So whenever we use the term populism, I think we have to be very it's Trump era populism. It's Trump brand populism. It's borrowing some traditional populism, but giving it the Trump sort of color. So we have the Trump doing the Trump thing, we have Hillary doing the Hillary thing. And does anybody recall the headlines, the breathless headlines on CNN two, three, four weeks out from the election? Democrats are expanding the map. Tennessee, Alabama. We're in play, baby. We're looking at, we're looking at blue and we're looking at lots of blue and we're expanding the map because Donald Trump's going to lose double digits and, and Nancy Pelosi is going to be speaker. That's how far out of sync 
Democrats were during this campaign. And as we know, now famously in the books written post-election, that Bill Clinton was telling his wife, you need to get to Madison, Wisconsin. You need to get to Pittsburgh. As a Maryland governor, uh, all Marylanders here are not shocked by this statement. We're, we tend not to be terribly competitive during presidential election years. <laughs> trying to be diplomatic. So as a member of the legislature, as a member of Congress, as governor, and by the way, not just me, but any Republican leader in Maryland, we tend to spend our time in southern Pennsylvania during presidential election years. And in the last campaign with with uh, with Mitt Romney, Rudy Giuliani and I were on the same team, and we spent a couple weekends late in the campaign just running through all the cold towns, and we would draw pretty good crowds, and the race was getting tighter, and we would come back and, and see the People were enthusiastic, and it was Romney. We had a chance to win, take that blue wall down, and we were excited about it. And election day came, and boom, we were short every time since 88 in Pennsylvania. We just couldn't get it done. And here we have a a uh, celebrity, casino owner, former Democrat, wrote lots of checks to Democrats, Mar-a-Lago. He marries America's working class overnight. Suburban Pittsburgh sprouts thousands of Trump signs. And the establishment's saying, what? Explain this, Ed. Yeah, and you shook your head. <laughs> and the establishment shook its collective head. And, and so uh, one thing, I, many of you know me, I'm a big Churchill file, and, and there's a lot of Churchill files. The American right loves Churchill. But one of my favorite Churchillisms is if you want to make progress, you can't stop and throw stones at every dog that barks. And what that means is you really have to, if you have a route, you have a strategy, you have to follow it, and you can't hate your enemies too much. And what we've seen now from day one of the campaign, from from the day he descended that, that escalator at <laughs> Trump Tower and the paid actors were applauding and, and we're seeing hate, we're seeing animosity, we're seeing resentment, we're seeing misunderstanding. But most of all, we're seeing not opposition, resistance, resistance. And so the violation of Churchill's rule occurs on a daily basis, on an hourly basis, sometimes by the minute. And sometimes it's real, sometimes the, the dogs are, are real, and sometimes the dogs are invisible. The MLK bust, missing from the Oval Office. First day story, absolutely made up. Absolutely made up. Mike Pence's religion and Jeff Sessions and the attacks on the electoral college and and Melania's heels and psych evaluations and physical fitness tests, and it's just relentless. It's relentless. And every time a stone is thrown at a dog, either visible or invisible, America between the coasts, fly over America, whatever term you want to use, digs in a little deeper for Donald Trump. That reservoir is deeper today than it has been, and I talk about that during the course of the, camp, of, of the book. So, uh, Three more points, real quick. One is, what, and, and I were just talking about this, if you really want to study the president, and I'm not saying this applies to every issue every day, but he wrote a book called Art of the Deal. And if you read the book and you apply it to what you see today, it really makes sense. It is the Art of the Deal, particularly with respect to the core issues he cares about that define his philosophical orientation, his approach. And so just a couple... The automobile manufacturers during the campaign, beat up, degraded, factories to Mexico, loss of American jobs. What happened next? 
America, the, every new factory announcement, we're going to build factory in the United States. What happens? The president says, I love the automobile manufacturers. I'm going to give you cafe relief. Congratulations. Lockheed, F-35. Too expensive. Degraded. Blasted. Criticized. Lockheed. What happened next? F-35, the price was cut. What happened next? We love Lockheed. We're, it, a lot, we love Lockheed. They're a critical part of our defense infrastructure. What happened next? The new Air Force One. Cost too high. Boeing. Boeing got crashed by the president. Absolutely trashed. Price was cut. What happened next? We love Boeing. They are part, they are so important to this economy. What happened next? NATO. Deadbeat members. This guy questioned the relevance of Article 5. We told you he was in, in bed with Putin. Right? What happened next? Those deadbeat members paid up. What happened next? We love NATO. Article 5 lives. NATO is critically important. And on and on and on from China and TPP and North Korea. Does anybody recall the first substantive policy statement out of the Trump administration? We're going to question one China policy. We told you he was crazy. There's going to be a nuclear war over Taiwan. We got President Xi's attention real fast, didn't he? What did he want? He needed help with North Korea. What did he get? A summit. What happened next? Praise for the president. It's not too hard to follow, but the press won't because they violate Churchill's rule every day. Now, uh, we talk about disruptors, and, and I always ask my audiences around the country, what part of disruptor did you think would be pleasant? What part of that word, a disruptor comes, and what do establishments like? What do establishments appreciate? What do they live on? They live on the status quo. They feed on the status quo. They have to have the status quo. They do anything to defeat disruptors. When a disruptor comes around, what do they do? They try to take he or she down. So it's not... It's very expected behavior, uh, but disruptors challenge assumptions, and establishments hate that, and, and disruptors ask questions. And in these last two points, I'd really like you to focus on, because the book addresses them in, in great detail. Disruptors ask a singular question that establishments hate. It's a one-word question, why? Why? And by the way, sometimes the whys are really unpleasant, even for those of us in this room. Why Iraq? Why Iraq? That's what Donald Trump did. Why Iraq? Why one China policy? Why passivity at the State Department? Why last-minute monument designations? Why NATO's continued relevance? Why mass illegal immigration? Why Paris? Why subsidies for the PLO? Why turning the other cheek at the UN? Why kneeling NFL players? Why so much PC on campus? Why nuns forced to pay for birth control? Why 1.5% growth as a new normal? Then he asked, why not? Same vein. Why not move our embassy to Jerusalem? Why not energy independence? Why not due process under Title IX? Why not a military parade? Why not Merry Christmas? Why not count everybody in the census? Why not religious liberty? Why not a better Iranian deal? Why not enforce our immigration laws? Why not? And so 
the book memorializes these challenges and it compares this Trump MO, this Trump approach to the last year of the Obama administration. And if you really want a sort of a subtitle for the book, it's you didn't build that meets damn straight we built that. And we're proud of it. And wealth is, is good. And success is something we need to teach our kids. And American exceptionalism is real. And so, uh, as I run around the country and, and, and finish, I, I, this is sort of the big finish, and it's been quite popular. There's so much every day that hits you. There's so much. He sucks the air out of the room. The establishment reacts. There's a new expose. If you watch CNN, MSNBC, one minute and turn on Fox the next, it's like we live in parallel universities. There's literally no, there's, there's nothing in common, right? There's literally nothing in common and it, it can be very confusing. So as a public service, I will not charge you for this. I have uh, put together uh, 90 seconds worth of where we were and where we are. How the Trump era has changed the rules of the road, the rules of the game, if you will. So just take a listen real quick. On regulation, we've gone from preemption to the Congressional Review Act. On Israel, we've gone from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, from Abbas to Bibi. On the PLO, we've gone from subsidies to brackets. When judges, we've gone from Garland to Gorsuch. On the tax code, we've gone from Kentians to Kemp. When immigration, we've gone from sanctuary cities to the rule of law. When Iran, we've gone from nuclear indulgence to a Sunni coalition. When ISIS, we've gone from a caliphate to caves. When Ukraine, we've gone from passivity to lethal weapons. On the environment, we've gone from Paris to Anwar. On North Korea, we've gone from the sidelines to a summit. On America's image, we've gone from imperialism to exceptionalism. On education, we've gone from the NEA to choice. On the internet, we've gone from net neutrality to freedom. On labor, we've gone from trial lawyers to the Chamber of Commerce. On Title IX, we've gone from presumed guilty to due process. On the census, we've gone from don't ask, don't tell to ask and tell. On voter ID, we've gone from a mailing address to photo identification. On growth, we've gone from 1.2% to 3%. On the Dow, we've gone from 19,000 to 25,000. In 90 seconds, in a year and a half, I would argue, Ed, that's why heritage exists, what I just said. It's not stormy. Let that sink in for a second. It's not throwing rocks at invisible dogs. It's not placating the establishment. It's breaking eggs. It's breaking glass. It ain't fun. And sometimes it's difficult to watch. But it's real substance and it's real progress. It's memorialized in this book. So I hope you all enjoy it. Thanks for coming out today. Thanks, Bob. That was terrific. You'll take some questions. I just have one correction to make. 
I counted there were 20, not 19 at the end. <laughs> Who's got the first question? We have mics. Here we go. Uh, yes, sir. Uh, my name is Kami Bhattam with the Pakistani Spectator. Each other for years. So. <laughs> and my question is uh, uh, about the separation of children from family. Since you used to work in the Congress, do you think that Trump has uh, reduced his leverage uh, about building a wall? I'm asking this question because now if you read Washington Post and New York Times, yeah. they are criticizing him between the line that he abandoned his supporter <laughs> who are supporting him on this issue. In other words, you see Hillary Clinton's statement, you see Obama's camp having teenagers. Oh, have it both ways. Exactly. But they, they are criticizing. I mean, it doesn't matter what he does, they are going to criticize him. Um, Thanks. I think we all know the administration just said, in this instance, uh, we can't take this heat. We're going to uh, take our lump, our short-term lump, and we're going to go on. And that was probably a smart thing to do with regard to, because he was not only losing, obviously, the left and people who see invisible dogs, he was also losing uh, GOPers as well. Uh, but what's interesting is, and if you, if, if what's, what's frustrating here, again, is if you know the history, if you know this was Obama administration policy, if you know the genesis of this was simply enforcing the law, the rule of law, which is what he ran on, which is why people like him. So uh, I, do th I, I don't think it certainly took a short-term hit. Do I think it's going to be lasting long-term? No. And do I think there's potentially an upside to it? Yes, because, again, he shows he's pretty serious about enforcing the law, and that should never weaken your negotiating position. Uh, Governor, on culture war questions, given yeah. the connection between uh, Trump's success and his style, to what extent do you think uh, his victories are permanent or transferable? Don't you love – just got to love the fact that, that on the left, literally their heads spin off because you have conservative – and 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 the, the religious right and and sort of social conservatives loving this guy. And in fact, when Stormy hit, pointed the polling show a week later, his numbers went up. <laughs> now I would argue, if that happened, someone like me, of course, I'd be dead because Kendall would have killed me. But um, if I think part of this is expectations, and there's some political science uh, phrase uh, or term that that, that uh, encompasses but in life it's expectations and you see it repeatedly when you have sort of a, a very strong philosophical candidate and they turn on the philosophical base and their numbers go up right and we see it time and time again and there's a lot of support for that philosophy then what happens life happens the candidate wins and that means as your governor or your member of Congress, you compromise. Sometimes you cut deals. Sometimes you don't have the votes to get what you want to do. But some, you, you disappoint the zealots. You disappoint the philosophical purists. What happens? Your numbers go down fast because your expectations were here and your performance was here. So I was in Florida recently and during the Stormy stuff and, and a woman and, and I brought up Stormy and, and the one woman said, ah, we didn't elect the Pope. Now vote for the Pope. So what sets the left crazy is for the first time we've become pragmatic. You know, we, we, 
whether that's good or bad, I'll, 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 I'll wait for future generations to judge. But we have said there's so much good in that 90 seconds. There's so much real. There's so much we didn't expect. There's so much different. There's so much movement on the right. There's, we're so different today. We're making progress. We can touch it. We can feel it. We can see it that we'll put up with Stormy. So, because the expectations are lower. The other thing, sort of the related point there is, and I typically make this point in my talks, he is not a creature of the Republican Party. He was a liberal Democrat for many years. His base is not purely a GOP base. Go to suburban Pittsburgh. Go to Dundalk, Maryland, Greg, where Greg Masoni lives. Eight to one Democrat. He got 70% in the race. He is a function of Middle class, working class, white and black people, by the way, who either showed up for him or didn't vote for Hillary Clinton. Where was Hillary Clinton night before the election? Downtown Philadelphia with Bon Jovi. Getting the black vote out. What? And by the way, African American vote didn't, didn't show up. And today, and in two and a half years, I predict, Republicans are going to have a really, really nice, not story, but narrative, factual narrative, to take to the inner cities of America and say, you know what? Things have improved with, with Donald Trump and Republicans. Thank you. I want to um, say that that 90-minute piece, 90-second piece, yeah. perfect. It's straight to the point. And it's, yes, yeah. they did a great job. <laughs> I was trying to copy you down, but I couldn't go too fast. Um, I also want to say that um, I've, President Trump, one of the things that I think people may have overlooked, and he constantly kicks it out, is that he's smart. He is really smart. I tested him. Now, let me say, I tested him August of 16. I, um, I posted some crime scene photographs that came out of Mexico. And I say crime scene. And I, I said, well, let me see what he's he going to do with this. And I thought he was going to take it and just kind of shut down the wall argument. No, he went 100% further. Yeah. He took a trip to Mexico. He used that to bargain a diplomacy trip for a candidate. He wasn't even office, and he's meeting with diplomats abroad. And that right there showed me that he's extremely smart. And there was another instance that I um, I, um, I calculated his smartness. Um, the night when the tape came out, it was like the, the couple of days before the um, debate. Mm-hmm. And I caught it around 5 o'clock. And I, I said, Mr. Trump, to myself, please don't say anything until I tweet. And so <laughs> let me tweet first. And so um, I came up with a strategy. Back in September, he had went to a um, a church in Detroit with um, Bishop yeah. Wayne Jackson. Yeah. Yeah. And Wayne Jackson, Bishop Jackson, had draped him with a, a Jewish cloth. And I said, okay, if he did that, then he's anointed. So about 9 o'clock that evening, I tweeted, oh, happy day. And Jesus washed his sins away. And I put a picture of him being draped. And then by 12 o'clock. Watched the news, and um, Liberty University president came on. He says, we are not trying to elect a school church uh, a school teacher. Pope. Yeah. Let me, let me, let me, you've raised, thank you, first of all. And you've, let me make five points real quick. One, 
you heard my previous story. We're not electing the Pope. We, we get that, which is interesting for our party. Secondly, people come up to me all the time, and I know you as well. And, and before they finish their sentence, <laughs> I finish it for them. It's, can you tell them first? I know who him is. And I know the, I knew the rest of the sentence, which is going to be, stop the tweets. And I stop them halfway, can you tell him? I say, no, I can't, because then you're asking him not to be him. And by the way, he likes being him. So not, not going to happen. Third, my best friend in Congress was Sonny Bono. We were, we became very great, great friends. I'm not a big share fan, but I love Sonny. And we sat together in banking when I was a freshman, didn't know him obviously, and we just became fast friends and, and he was dumb too, right? He was really dumb. He had 10 top 10 songs he wrote. He had the number one TV show in America for many years that he produced, wrote. He was the brains. He was a very successful entrepreneur, very successful politician, but he was dumb. Ronald Reagan was dumb. Fell asleep, nap time. He was dumb. You know, we're, we're dumb on our side. And, and by the way, they like to repeat that. And I love the fact they think that. They think you're dumb. They think Heritage is dumb. They don't get it. And then my, 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 uh, my other observation is, is this, or two more for, uh, my fourth observation is, I've had, we got to know the president when he, uh, we negotiated to bring Miss USA to Baltimore. I was governor. And so we've gotten to know him over the years. We've been with him in private settings. And when you're with him in a private setting, he's almost quiet. He's almost shy. And I'm very serious about this, and you know this. What he does, though, is he consumes information. He listens. He absolutely consumes what you say, right? And then uh, my fifth observation is uh, go watch the uh, speech to the polls after the G20 last year, and you tell me he's dumb. That was probably the best for, uh, speech I've seen from American president in many years. So Anyway, now he's not intellectual, doesn't pretend to be, doesn't want to be, and uh, sometimes that, that hurts. But dumb, no. Uh, it, it, you're right. You're, you're, I, I agree. My first question is that uh, is what is good for Trump? Is it good for America? And the other <laughs> issue is that uh, uh, moving the embassy to Jerusalem, was it a good idea? And also, wasn't it because he wanted to have the protection of Jewish lobby over here regarding immigration and media attack on him and that kind of stuff, while moving the embassy has damaged the country a lot all over the world? Well, it's not an idea. First of all, it was American policy for decades. We just didn't have presidents with the fortitude to do it. So it wasn't an idea at all. Republican, Democrat, bipartisan policy was move the embassy. He just did it. He's a disruptor. He actually did what he said he was going to do, which causes this town cognitive dissidence in many cases. Um, secondly, I guess the, the premise of your question or the denominator is, did he do it to placate uh, Jewish voters? And quite frankly, from what I've seen, uh, Jewish voters who opposed him still oppose him, <laughs> and Jewish voters who support him still support him. So if there was some great political calculus here, uh, it's lost on me. And the first question is, what's good? I mean, the president's not perfect. He's not always right. 
Um, my wife tells me I'm not always right. She tells me that every day. and Almost. almost. And um, she is right. And clearly, um, mistakes are made. It's, we're humans. And, and the presidency is a, a human construct. But uh, with regard to changing the direction of the country, there's 90 seconds. Changing the direction of the country in accordance with ways that this, this organization stands for, uh, this is Reagan-esque. Hi, um, my name is Priscilla Barton. I'm from Baltimore. Um, I'm actually working on um, Governor Hogan's re-election campaign, and I was actually God in. Bless you. Thanks. I was actually in Dundalk yesterday doing some canvassing, um, <laughs> and a lot of those voters are labeled, um, you know, key Democrats and Democrat expansion or key Democrat expansion um, targeted groups. And when I was out targeting, pretty much every one of them said that they were going to be in the Republican camp. Do you think and also, um, this is a side note, but Michael Bloomberg came out yesterday and said that he was going to support the Democrats in their bid to take over Congress. He did? Yeah, he did. <laughs> um, do you think that... The Orioles they won last night, but that, that, was, that, was, that wasn't his early. Do you think that... I mean, he's a different type of elite and that he's not a true politician, but do you think that... He's a wannabe. <laughs> do you think that the political elites have truly realized that they're seeing a different reality than what the American people are seeing. Yeah, you know, I mean, that's, no, that's what's so cool about it. No, uh, when you keep throwing stones at invisible dogs, you're not dealing with reality. You know, this is not an opposition. This is resistance. This is something we haven't seen before. You know, this is, this is, this is, this is, this is going to the home of free speech, Berkeley. This is where the civil rights movement and the anti-war movement and the women's movement took shape, you know, with regard to dissent and what the country's all about. And this is going to Berkeley and saying, we're shutting speech down. We don't believe in free speech. We believe in our narrow view of the world. And it's why the left is on the defensive. It's, it's antithetical to to why you exist here and, and, and our fundamental principles. It's, it's, it's interesting. Uh, I wrote a piece recently, where are the liberals? Now, we, when I grew up, it was liberals and conservatives. Now the liberals are being displaced and the liberals, I love to talk to my liberal friends and say, what happened to, what happened to your movement? What happened to speech? What do you, what do you do? You're degrading freedom. You're celebrating this and then you celebrate it. And you have speech codes and trigger warnings and all sorts of silliness that you teach young people. What is this? And uh, I never get a good answer. So um, your walk through Dundalk, I'm sure, showed you that governor's got a lot of support, president has a lot of support, and that's no secret. And if you go through suburban Pittsburgh, you'll see the same thing. If you walk through suburban, name a big city, and you talk to Democrats. By the way, and so that's my point. This is not a Republican movement. And it's not necessarily a conservative movement with regard to trade and condemnation and certain, it were, it's a, tr it's a sort of a Trump movement and it borrows traditional principles of conservatism, republicanism, and populism, and American nationalism, but it's very unique. And it's working.
All right, let me let me ask for a prediction. So let <laughs> let's say that uh, Trump time. Yeah, uh, Trump is reelected in 2020, makes it to 2024. Then what? I like your just, premise. Just as you uh, said, this is not really a Republican president. Uh, what's going to come after him that will be carrying on his yeah. legacy? I, I, I think, let me sort of rephrase your question. I think what you're asking is, because you can't, obviously, six years in the future, but let me rephrase the question I think you're asking. Does he take up so much energy that when you get to November of 2020, we're done. You know, we all want to go to Cancun. You know, <laughs> we just, enough. I can't take it one more day. And I think the answer, after a year and a half, and basically he's been on the political stage for two, he's been doing this for two and a half years. He's been sucking the air out daily for two and a half years. He doesn't look tired to me. And the rallies appear to be well attended. And the last time I checked, real wage growth in this country is happening, which was the problem with the Obama era, right? Forget everything else. Forget all the other macro indicators. It was all about real wage growth in those neighborhoods, in those neighborhoods. Great-grandfather factory, grandfather factory, father factory, son factories close up. We're in Dundalk, Maryland. What are we doing? What's next? Well... Those folks don't want to hear you didn't build that. Believe me. And they believe in America. They believe in the American dream. So the great answer here is I think we're not going to be exhausted. I think the stakes are so important that uh, that we're going to be able to to put it together again. And, and right now, obviously, given the state of the economy, where we are in the world, not that things are perfect. They never are. But uh, he's in pretty good position. Oh, so I think what I understood is just after 2024, if Trump wins re-election, is the Trump movement sustainable without oh, 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 a successor? Oh, okay, that was that your. I'm oh, sorry, not a lot of sleep. Um, I don't know. I don't know. The, I'm not sure you could replicate this. I'm not sure you could replicate. And by the way, if you try, you'll be seen as a phony. And the reason, it, I guess, the left hates him because they think he's a phony. But if you follow him over the years, it hasn't changed very much. It really hasn't. Sometimes it's stream of consciousness. Sometimes it's 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 a factual misstatement. And sometimes just, but it, it's if again if you take a look at the speeches from 30 years ago, the the love of America, the caring for our veterans, the importance of the economy and tax cuts and deregulation. Uh, the importance of having a country where sovereignty means something, where the country means something, uh, that's pretty consistent. So, but as far as successor, I, I, I would guess no. But what the terrain, what the landscape is going to look like at that era, it's going to be so different. And the party, the Democrats, by the way, they have their own challenge. Are they going to go back to be the party of the left or are they going to be the party of progressives? Hubert Humphrey or Elizabeth Warren? I mean, agreed? We'll see. I'm Carl Sesher. I live in Colorado, but I did 
medical school at Maryland and residency at Hopkins. Accounts. You should have voted. <laughs> I'm not dead yet. <laughs> um, this is a, a progression of something Rush Limbaugh brought up, which is in the late 60s, you have all the anti-nuke demonstrations and so on. And now that Trump is succeeding, progressing to anti-nuke, what's the left going to do next? What are they going to uh, to bring up since they're against their own policy? I'm the wrong person to ask because I don't understand what they do to begin with. Um, but I do know this, that if one of your foundations is is class envy, I, again, I keep going back to the, you didn't build that because it was so instructive. It was so uh, definitional with regard to those eight years. And what that really meant was, in my view, was you need government. You know, we are going to degrade individualism. It's the collective. It's the neighbor. It's it's the what did Hillary say? It's the the community, the village, the village, the village. Yeah, and we all know we all need, we need help in life. We're not just individualists alone. But you go out to the American entrepreneurs and ask them who built that, and they'll tell you they did. And that really sets us apart. And to degrade that, that message wasn't lost on a lot of people. Have I defeated you? <laughs> one more. I think we have. Okay, one more. Last question. Uh, Governor, I, I was thrilled to be able to vote for you uh, when you ran for office. And Did you only vote once? I voted as many times as I could. Uh, that's off the record. From the neighbors. Uh, all right. Uh, what, I'd, what I'd like to hear from you, is there a chance that you could give Republican Governor Hogan a call and Republican President Trump a call, and maybe the leaders in the two houses, and see if you can end taxation without representation in D.C. by <laughs> seating essentially every voter there. So then they would have access to the two senators in the House and everything they have ever dreamed of. There have been compromises offered. My friend Tom Davis offered a compromise years ago, as you know. But the compromises have gone nowhere. But it's, it's a worthy conversation. Thank you all very much for having me. Thanks very much, Governor. We appreciate your being with us today. Uh, and copies of the book are available outside. Uh, and we thank you particularly for your kind remarks about heritage. We just had uh, an advanced look this Sunday's New York Times Magazine as a long feature piece about heritage and our role with regard to the Trump administration. Somewhat reluctantly, I urge all of you to read it. For, you know. uh, somebody, 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 somebody we both know, you know, the failed New York Times. I don't really want to add to their bottom line by another hundred uh, subscriptions uh, for this weekend. But Sunday's paper is going to be very good. But in the meantime, what you really have to do is pick up Bob Ehrlich's book, and read it, and learn from it, and learn where we are, and why it's such an exciting time to be a part of what's going on in Washington. Thank you, Governor Ehrlich. Appreciate it. You signed some books?